hours a week of open mic stage time for all your comedy workout needs. Strain those improv muscles every Sunday from 4 to 6 at Getting Sketchy with David Stolowitz. Press out those new jokes every Monday, 6 to 8, on Joke Workshop with four-minute sets and four-minute critiques from everyone. Get positive by host Pam Benjamin. Pump those dick jokes every Thursday, 7 to 9, with True Hustle Thursdays. Hashtag THC. That's hashtag THC. You want more open mics? Fridays, 6 to 8. Happy hour with guest host and George D. Smith. Pew, pew, pew. Four open mics every week at Mutiny Radio, brother. After work and take a seat at Asiento, a great place to meet friends, have delicious tapas and drinks, and relax with your neighbors. Located at Bryant 21st Street in the Deep Mission, Kitty Corner Block from Mutiny Radio. Come and get a drink during the comedy festival and enjoy happy hour pricing all night long with your festival ticket. A great neighborhood bar. Come take a seat at Asiento. Everybody should listen to Mutiny at mutinyradio.fm. It's a great place to listen to crazy things. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a pattern? Well, gather around me sea dogs and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutinyradio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shitface McRat. <laughs> Hey everybody, listen to the Weekly Review with Roman every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. This is an unapologetically anti-capitalist program. We interview community organizers, activists, and artists. We talk about ways you can take action right now. So listen in to the Weekly Review every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. Without even knowing it, thinking 
thinking, just going with the trends. Putting the ends above your friends. Cause you got a bunch of fake ones riding in your beds. Time to change. Money over everything is lame. Don't believe me, just watch. I won't have to explain. My name ain't all that when you change to entertain. But can't exchange knowledge, you arrange mental planes. Welcome to Women's Magazine. This is Global Val here at MutinyRadio.fm. Today is Friday, March 9th, 2018. Thank you so much for joining me today. There was some music from our friends Rasteria. That's R-A-Z-T-E-R-I-A. Rasteria. That was also uh, featuring... Um, who was that? Uh, Ramon Jamal. That was their song called Change off of their album Aventurera. That's Asteria Records. And um, the reason I know about this music is because um, Renee Asteria sent her CD to Mutiny Radio and I play it. Um, I don't, that was actually not off of her CD, um, but she has a great um, song that I like to play called illegal, which talks about how illegal immigration is just an illusion. Here at Mutiny Radio and on Women's Magazine, we certainly like to highlight humanity and the, the, the things that we all share and the rights that we all have. And here at Mutiny Radio, we exercise free speech and uh, freedom of expression. So it's really great to be here this fine Friday. I have a few announcements about some events that are coming up. Um, this evening, another very cool local band called the Mayan Dynasty. They are a local San Francisco band. It's like Latin funk, rock, reggae. Um, totally want to make you move your feet. Are an amazing group of musicians. They're going to be playing tonight at the Milk Bar. They 9.30 at the Milk Bar. That is on Haight Street right near Stanion. And tomorrow... Um, there's an interesting event that's being um, hosted at the Bayview Opera House and hosted by the San Francisco Arts Commission. It's the 2018 Bayview Artist Registry. So that's Saturday, March 10th. That's tomorrow morning from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. The Bayview Opera House in San Francisco. And um, it is going to host a workshop for Bayview-based or connected artists. And the focus of this workshop will be a brief overview of the San Francisco Arts Commission public art program with examples of types of public art projects commissioned by the program, helpful tips on submitting a competitive application, and walkthrough of the online application system 
slide room. Uh, they will not be reviewing specific opportunities for upcoming projects, um, but one-on-one -on -one technical assistance will be available at a later date. Um, but for more information about the projects, eligibility, the budget, the application process, and the one-on-one -on -one assistance, you can go to sfartscommission.org slash find-opportunities slash call for artists. Um, so that is an exciting opportunity uh, if you want to get out there and you're a Bayview-based or Bayview-connected artist and um, want to see how you can get involved in creating some public art here in San Francisco and specifically in the Bayview. Uh, I would recommend you go and check it out. Um, another thing that is happening tomorrow, Saturday, March 10th, is the is a celebration a gathering for International Women's Day, which was yesterday. Happy International Women's Day, everybody. Uh, the International Women's Day at the Comfort Women's Memorial, that is tomorrow, Saturday, March 10th, from 2 p.m. to 3.30 p.m. at St. Mary's Square Park in Chinatown. Uh, in honor of International Women's Day, we invite you to participate in a ceremony at the Comfort Women's Memorial in San Francisco. This event will make connections between the story of World War II comfort women and current forms of systemic violence impacting women today. Come to share in a ritual honoring World War II comfort women, women impacted by US military bases in Asia and the Pacific, women victims of war, and missing and murdered indigenous women, migrant women at the US Mexico border and others. Bay Area organizations will make altars for this event to honor and lift up courageous women who are refusing to remain invisible and speak truth. So I encourage you to all get out there and connect with the community. And thank you for tuning in to connect with this community here at Mutiny Radio. I'm going to play a little more music for you, but I have a very special guest today. I'm going to be welcoming Angela Aliotto, who is running for mayor of San Francisco. Uh, she was previously on the Board of Supervisors. Uh, and we're going to be talking a lot about some of the landmark legislation that she authored as the president of the Board of Supervisors, and also some about some of her priorities in this election season here in San Francisco. So thank you so much for tuning in. Here is a little more music for you and we'll be right back.
Well, welcome. You are listening to Women's Magazine. I'm Global Val, and you are listening to Mutiny Radio.fm. We're based here in the Mission District of San Francisco. I have a very special guest today. I am welcoming Angela Alioto. She is running for mayor. I've been on the mayoral uh forum circuit. Uh, we have a, an election coming up in June and uh, it is a, it's a, it's a fun, fast season. Perhaps she doesn't agree with me about the fun part, but maybe so. Um, let me give, by way of introduction, Angela Alioto is a civil rights attorney. She's born and raised in San Francisco. She was a member of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors from 1988 to 1997, including her role as the president of the board. Some of her legislative credits include passing, helping to pass the first medical marijuana law and authoring the first smoking bans in bars and restaurants, the San Francisco needle exchange law, and perhaps most notably today, the first sanctuary city law. In 2004, she was appointed by then Mayor Gavin Newsom to, the ch- to chair the 10-year council uh, to end chronic homelessness. So many landmark accomplishments to her credit, some of which we hope to discuss today as we talk about her third run for mayor of San Francisco. So Angela Alioto is a pleasure and an honor. Welcome to Women's Magazine. Thank you so much. And three's the charm. <laughs> That's right. Third time's the charm. And so... Speaking of, you've, you've run for mayor before. You've been you know, deeply part of the San Francisco political fabric for a very long time. So let's start more generally. Why you and why now? Well, for me, it's uh, the you know, shocking and surprising death of Mayor Lee um, made it clearly apparent to me that the condition of the city, um, because of homelessness, dirty streets, crime, um, lack of affordable housing, that this is the time for me to run. This is the time I'm most needed in what I do best and what I have done in my life and succeeded in doing. Um, you know, the 10-year plan to end chronic homelessness that I did from 2004 to 2011 was absolutely successful with permanent supportive housing and treating people with uh, respect and dignity and giving them a unit to live in, but nevertheless having the supportive medical part of it. Um, it worked. And then in 2012, when um, Gavin Newsom left and went to uh, Sacramento, the housing that we had in the pipeline for the formerly homeless was then moved to affordable housing. So people would be being picked up off the streets, go through whatever particular short-term rehab they had, and then there was no place to put them. So they would put them back onto the street, which has led us to the modern-day crisis, um, which uh, I think I can absolutely um, apply the same plan with more rapid response. Um, In other words, taking people off the street quicker because people are sicker and there are more of them. And when you're living in a tent, um, there are all sorts of uh, communicable diseases. And so um, I'm absolutely sure that I can make a major difference in that. So the reason I'm running is basically for um, uh, the homeless situation and for um, the crime and clean streets. Those are three things. It's kind of like, um, Val, the soul of our city is being ripped apart. And it's in so many ways. It's not just homelessness, dirty streets, and lack of affordability and viability, just general livable city, uh, you know, not being the case anymore like it's always been my whole life. But there's a certain tearing away at the soul of who San Francisco is. And I've seen it in such interesting areas. This is going to sound silly to most people that haven't been around for a long time, but the denial of the summer of love permit when I had the fights with the, with the department heads, I kept telling them, these people are the original people, okay? They've been here 50 years. They've had very, very successful concerts free in the park, right? No, they were summarily denied. And I thought, you know, you just don't understand this city. You know, whether it was 50 years ago, 25 years ago, 10 years ago, or five years ago, we want the Summer of Love originals to be able to come back and sing in our city, free, in Golden Gate Park. Right, like like they've been able to do every 10 years right. since. And very and, successfully. Right, I know. It was, it's, it's, it was always it's a, a great celebration to be part of. And 
you know, in this, this time, I mean, 50 years later, we're really lucky to still have a lot of those people who were instrumental. There. Yeah. Right. And, and we're doing the performances and, and, and they can bring back the same bands, even though they're a lot older and then they can bring back the new bands. But the point is to celebrate love instead of hatred, to celebrate a great city instead of a city that, you know, is, is picking up immigrants under President Trump. Right, right. And kind of, I, I, I can relate to that in, in the kind of loss of, of the soul or the, con, the cultural yeah. context right, of this right. really, I mean, San Francisco has played such a huge role culturally throughout the world. Absolutely. And people still come to San Francisco looking for that. That's right. I, I work with a lot of international people and uh, they definitely want to experience some of that they know a little bit about or more about the history and they 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 want to find it um but it's i think increasingly getting a little bit harder and harder to find speaking of the of homelessness um and the tenure council that you were the chair of uh, i wanted to talk a little bit more about that how how did that how did that council actually get together and work and and come up with these creative solutions that helped house so many people in permanent supportive housing? Um, I um, put together a list of anywhere, it was about 45 people. They all hated each other. I had the coalition uh, um, housing, Jennifer Friedenbach, and I had the hotel council, Bob Bagley, and I had the restaurant association, um, and I had the archdiocese, and I had nonprofits at the table that deal with homelessness. I had people that were not getting along. That's one of my strongest um, uh, fortes, actually, is a, co a coalition building, which is so desperately what the city needs right now. Nobody is talking to anybody. And it's the reason why we have no city planning and we don't have um, available affordable housing. Um, there's so many reasons why we don't. And I think the, one of the major ones is not being able to put together the right people. So I got together the right people. They were there for six months. We wrote up the plan very diligently. We, we went into every area. We started with prevention. How do you keep people in their housing? How do you fight the Ellis Acts eviction? How do you make sure that people are not a paycheck away from um, um, not being able to pay the rent? We would. We even had a program where we were paying some of the rent, and then um, then the then the plan moved into those that are already on the street that have been on the street for four years or more. We consider to be chronic, generally speaking, with um, triple diagnosis. So we attended to those specific needs um, and got them off the street into permanent supportive housing units um, uh, where they would be rehabbed also while in the unit. We had uh, eight buildings done that was um, hundreds and hundreds of uh, units. And then we would have a minute clinic um, nearby or some um, hospital uh, nearby so that the supportive part was there because you can't just take people off the street that are sick. Um, and not have support. A lot of the people you take off the street aren't sick yet, which is another area that we really um, investigated, and that is newly on the street, newly off. Uh, easy to get someone on the street that is uh, hasn't been on for more than 90 days. At 90 days, your brain cells start to deteriorate. So our goal was to get people off the street as soon as they got on. And at the time, it was women because... Women were not on the streets. Uh, so when you saw a woman, it was rare. And so you knew she'd been there very recently. So that it was very easy to start getting women off the street. Today, the epidemic, interestingly enough, uh, the nationwide epidemic is unaccompanied women who have been sexually, 60% uh, of whom have been sexually abused and or battered and assault, assaulted. So. Those are the ones you would want to try to help get off the street immediately. Um, but the 10-year plan works. It really works. Um, and um, other plans have not. Navigational centers are great, but they're a dead end. They end after 120 days, 140 days. Now, if you have a navigational center where you put someone within 24 hours and then they transition into a unit, that's the way that should work. But if you're going to spend all that money and then put them back out into the street. You need to stop all those contracts where you're spending all that money that just puts people back out into the streets. And this rapid and, and system. And reinvest it, by the way, into, into housing.
And, and so the, this RAPID system, which is an acronym, um, can you tell us a little bit more about what, what that is? Yes, that just means within 48 hours, we're going to pick you up, assess you. That It's the triage. And, and then um, the triage is, is a system of being able to know, well, if you're triple diagnosed, then it's obviously a medical care. If it's psychiatric, which is 44%, generally speaking, of any general homeless population. That's not chronic homeless. General homeless population in 2004 was 11 to 14,000 people. Today, I'm sure it's the same or more. Chronic, the people have been on the street for four to six years. So you really have to do it on an individual analysis, and it's not difficult. We went out to clean the streets in Hayes Valley the other day, and just in the time that we cleaned the streets, I housed three people that were in the, a couple that was living in a doorway and a gentleman who was in the park who, I've never had anybody say to me, no, Angela, I don't want a unit. Or no, I don't want help. No one's ever said, no, I don't want help. As sick as they might be or mentally imbalanced as they might be, I've never had someone tell me no. And we do certainly spend a lot of money in oh. in the city to try to address homelessness. Um, so I want to link this conversation on homelessness to to the housing crisis in, in San Francisco, um, because there's also the affordability crisis. Um, so for I, here's some numbers from the Coalition on the Homeless, Jennifer Friedenbach's organization. Uh, this was their fact, homelessness fact sheet that came out in June of 2016, their most recent one. 71% of homeless people in San Francisco were previously housed residents of San Francisco, right. which is... It, that shocks people. It's shocking. Yeah. It's a, it's an incredible number. Um, what, what really shocks me even more and what worries me a lot is that there's 3,300 homeless children who are living in their intact families, um, including 2,300 and 52 children who are enrolled, homeless children who are enrolled in the San Francisco Unified School District. That number was up from 844 in 2005. Uh, on, on, the level of affordability, the average rent for a studio apartment is $2,200, which prices out most people working in the service sector, as well as a lot of families who are getting public assistance checks. And there's eight at the time, there were 8,000 households on the wait list for public housing. So it's a, it's a, it's a big uh, net of issues. So my question is, how can we address the issues of affordability uh, for all San Franciscans, including teachers and families, while we wait for more housing to become available? And how do we keep people in their homes? Well, you know, homelessness isn't necessarily unaffordability. There are a lot of people who are on the streets who are not looking for available, affordable housing. Right. I mean, it's not even an issue. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's. I mean, the, the the issue of available, affordable housing is not a homeless issue. I, I guess the, because yeah. affordable isn't affordable to someone who's on the street. That's it just true. Isn't. It's not like it's thirty percent of their SSI or GI or any of the federal government or or state government money. I mean, it's not the same people. This the people that are affordable housing people who don't get housing leave town they don't go to the street because they can afford to live in in areas close to san francisco they just can't afford to live in san francisco's out of control it's oh yeah out of control what everybody on the panels and these mayor's debates debates what they're saying is affordable is ridiculous you have to make over two hundred thousand dollars one hundred eighty thousand dollars or to live here well that's not affordable so as a born and raised San Franciscan, my grandmother was born and raised here, so was my father. Um, you know, we want our families to live here. I'm the only parent in this mayor's race. Um, and um, I think it does make, uh, not a difference, but it does bring a feeling of responsibility to do something about this so that our children and grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren will be able to live in this great city like we were allowed to. But to answer your question, it's not the same group of people. I, I guess if, to separate it, because I see what I, I understand what you're saying, but to separate it and look at the, the families who are getting evicted right. and then, you know, 
being still part of the community, having their children enrolled in school, you know, go having their same jobs, perhaps, or, you know, their, their same, you know, services or their doctors nearby and everything in their community being the same, but them not being able to afford, you know, either being evicted or their, or their rent was hiked up so high that they end up either not necessarily pitching a tent on division street, but maybe, you know, bunking up their whole family in somebody else's living room or living out of their cars and teachers too. Right. Right. Well, as far as teachers and and police and fire and, um, uh, the, those types of jobs. I think that the plan that San Jose used is excellent. They just did an entire 315-unit building that's just teachers at affordable teacher prices. And the builder was able to make enough of a profit, profit to do the building. I think we need to encourage that. I think we need to encourage integrated um, buildings, buildings where like two or three of our home, formerly homeless buildings have formerly homeless on the first three or four floors and then um, below affordable housing on the next few floors and then on the top floors, affordable housing. And they all live in the same building and they live very, very well. There certainly is not enough of that going on. Um, That could be going on with just about any development. There's a new one at Mission and and 16th. It's over 300 300, uh, uh, units and it's more than 50% affordable. That's the highest new development exists in the city that has um, uh, uh, that high of a percentage of uh, affordable housing. But when you talk about families, generally speaking, a family that gets run out of their apartment, that's where you've got to step in and help is knowing they're being run out. And we did a lot of saving people's apartments for them in, in the 2000s with our plan. Um, we, we had a whole fund created to pay people's rent um, but generally speaking, the family um, uh, leaves town. Those that don't leave town are the ones that need our immediate it's un- immediate attention. It's unconscionable that a child is going to school and living in a car or a tent at night. It's unacceptable in a rich city like this. Um, and so those need to be attended to immediately. When I saw this uh, documentary on TV about, I don't know, five months ago, of all the kids that actually are homeless going to school, it's like we know who they are. We even know where they are at night. Why isn't this present government doing something about it? How do you watch something like that? I can, you can tell I'm a little passionate about this. How do you watch that, know where they are, know where they're sleeping, and continue to allow them to do it without giving them? I mean, we have many government uh, properties in San Francisco that could easily be turned into an apartment. We have many um, stores that are empty, that if the stores are going to remain vacant, they need to be taxed after a certain, if it's, they're vacant more than six months, they need to be taxed. Or we need to change the zoning in those areas to make those stores mini apartments. There are over 10,000 of them that could be mini apartments. So there are so many out-of-the-box, innovative ways to deal with homelessness. There's even containers, like in Hayes Valley. I don't know if you've seen the stores that are working out of containers. Yeah. It's very uh, artsy, you know, craftsy. <laughs> I love it. You right, know? very DIY yeah. and thinking outside the box, Absolutely. inside the box at the same time, right? Yeah, <laughs> right, right. So um, I mean, I'm telling you, the present government doesn't do anything. They do fi- a lot of fighting. But they're not doing anything that they could immediately go pick those children and families up um, and the women on the street and give them immediate housing. They just simply could. I met with the homeless um, head the other day, Jeff, nice guy. He is wonderful. Um, He's just got his hands tied. You know, he can't do what he wants to do. If he could do what he'd want to do, he would be able to be housing so many more people. So my point is... um, the government's just letting this happen. And a lot of my colleagues that are running for uh, mayor will sit and tell you what they've done. And then you go outside and see the reality and it just doesn't jive. You know, but people are very good at denying reality. Well, it's it's great that you. Uh, I'm I'm so glad you came down here today, um, so that we could. Um, Aren't you glad you invited me? <laughs> I'm I'm absolutely glad you, to have invited you. I'm glad that you came, um, because at the a lot of the forums, you know, you only get about two minutes to answer right. a question, and right. that's certainly not enough time to, um, you know, make make your the nuances understood right. or 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 known. Um, so, 
kind of moving forward, still talking about housing, uh, talking about, you know, you mentioned, you know, potentially rezoning different areas. Let's talk about city planning and, and density. Um, and now I have to, I'm a disclaimer. I'm from the sunset, uh, born and raised and, and, you know, it's, one could argue it's a dense area of single family homes and apartment buildings. Um, but I hope you can tell I've ventured east, far east of Twin Peaks. Um, but um, my concern as we look at the kind of the need for housing, the demand for housing and, and big developments and things is really more of a uh, public health and environment concern. We have our, our 49 square mile footprint here on the, you know, on the bay, which, you know, east of Montgomery Street is built on a lot of landfill, uh, you know, Three, right. 380 feet. 380 feet. Right. My, my building, uh, my law firm is right on the corner of Mar- uh, uh, Montgomery and Washington, right across the street from the pyramid. And when I did the earthquake studies uh, as the president of the Board of Supervisors after the 89 earthquake, uh, the landfill from uh, Montgomery to the pier. Well, the, the basement of my building has piers that the boats would come up to. Wow. So um, from my building to the Embarcadero is 380 feet of landfill. <laughs> All right, so we're on the same page here. We're we're looking at the same, uh, you know, footprint of of San Francisco, which, you know, perhaps one can argue a lot of the developers ignore a little bit. Um, but getting back to the to the public health, the environmental perspective, um, I think that with this with the need for more housing and 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 development, uh, it's it really does concern me that the, about the strain uh, that it puts on our infrastructure, uh, puts on our environment, uh, which raises questions about the safety in an emergency, like in an earthquake, um, as well as just general public health and hygiene. California has been experiencing years of drought. We're already tapping into our groundwater. Um, and looking at the new Salesforce tower alone, someone mentioned to me, it's not my thing. They said, that's a lot of toilets flushing. Um, so it's even a lot more jobs that didn't uh, we didn't plan for the traffic and the infrastructure the street the, everything from the sewers to the water to the uh pavement to um where are they going to live this is my point nobody sat down and said okay welcome twitter welcome facebook uh how many employees are you going to have and let's see how we how we can fix the infrastructure but i think more to your point also none of that went on that has to go on when you're bringing in three and 4,000 employees into a building. Okay, it just has to. Um, but to your point is, is Scott Wiener's new legislation. Do you know about that one? Yeah, is it yeah. SB 857? Eight, 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 47? 47. I don't know. It's Sorry, three, I don't have that number. Starts it is. Eight. starts with an eight. There's a seven in there, too. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but, but, you know, it, it's not finished now, and I'm glad about that because um, – you, if you're going to build up seven, eight, nine, ten stories, I mean, first of all, the Sunset are single dwellings. The Richmond are single dwellings. What are you going to do, put a ten-foot building next to um, these the smaller houses? I mean, you're really going to have that kind of city where it looks like, you know, uh, up and down, up and down, up and down, and then not be able to uh, manage the infrastructure of it, the traffic, the parking, everything that goes along with it. Um, San Francisco is a very unique city. You can go all over the world and be in San Francisco. You can go to Mexico, Spain, Italy, Russia, Chinatown. We have the largest Chinatown in the world. It is a very unique city. You can't just make it, you know, I was going to say Hong Kong, but Hong Kong's even a, a beautiful city, except that it's so dense that it's not livable. And we don't. that's not what we want to do. And so until that legislation's in its final stages and we really know what it's going to mean, because right now they're not even clear on what is a bus stop, what's a bus terminal, what's a busway, you know, it could be any bus, at which point that would be absurd. Right, because that, that, that bill that is still being worked on would increase the, like you said, Height. the, the heights density. and density uh, near transit hubs, but that's a California bill. But when you apply it to San Francisco, it's basically every few blocks. Exactly. So exactly. it, that that poses a huge. I mean, either you're going to you know totally rezone and and raise parts of San Francisco to do it, um, or it's just not going to work here. Um, but also, I mean, a, a thing, another topic that's come up 
you know, during this election season is the red tape and how long things take to happen in San Francisco. So I have, I, I have a little bit of, uh, you know, it gives me a, a little breathing room when I think about, well, even if that were to pass, I mean, how, how would they even really implement all of these things and how long would it take? It would take the next 50, hundred years. Mm-hmm. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about the red tape of the uh, planning department because um, that's that's been a big issue that's that's Planning, come up. DPW and MTA, all three of them. I'm of the opinion two of them need new leadership soon. They've been there way too long. They're they're too you know everything's laissez faire, and uh, they're not getting the job done. We need we need new department heads that are going to go in there and put those departments in line and make people um, make the department do what it's supposed to be doing and not just wasting money. Uh, you know, DPW and um, um, MTA is just like a money hole. It's absurd how many streets get keep torn, keep being torn up. How many um, streets keep being closed? How many between MTA and, and and DPW, the city is spending millions and millions and millions of dollars without seeing any improvement. And those curb cuts. In my opinion, all the curb cut, you know what I'm talking about, where they go out the sidewalk at the end of the street, goes out into a semicircle. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's supposed to make the crosswalk shorter for disabled people and for people that have a harder time getting across the street, like the elderly. Mm -hmm. But what it does in its application is puts the person at the edge of the street with the bus flying by seven inches away. I have seen it in North (laughs) Beach. It's boggling to me. I always tell people, please stand back. Because that bus flies down the street. And if you stand out on these new curbs that are supposed to help people, you know, you, you find, and as we've already found, it's going to be very dangerous for pedestrians. Yeah, I've, I've noticed lots of things like that in San Francisco, especially over the past few years. I feel like there's a lot of plans that are being drawn up by people who've never walked on the streets. Right. So... Um, I, I understand where you're coming from in that regard, um, you know, uh, even just with transit. And as we look at maybe, you know, and, and building more housing and, and expecting to accommodate more people, the strain on, on our transit system is going to be perhaps even you know, more monumental than any other infrastructure system uh, that, that we have to, you know, we would have to adapt to. Uh, I mean, Muni hasn't changed a whole lot in my lifetime, except for the at price. All. Except it, and it also doesn't derive on time at all. Yeah, I've, I've never uh, depended upon it as, a, as something that has a schedule. Muni's doing too many things. You know, it's doing too many things. It ought to focus on a few things and do them right. Because it was just a few years ago that Muni got brought under the SFMTA umbrella. So now it's this huge department that right. is talking, that is in Does charge everything. of the streets and, and the transit. Um, so would you, I mean, I, I know you mentioned about getting new leadership in there. Um, would, would you try to, you know, kind of step back from that and try to get Muni to be more of its independent agency and try to take it out of SFMTA again? Or is that something that you just think no, we that- could work out as, as is with some, some new people in there? No, I, um, I think that's something that needs to be studied. I definitely um, think that there's too much going on in that one department. But the problem, Val, has been, seriously been, Ed Lee is a wonderful man. I'm very close to Ed Lee. Um, I have been for 40 years. I'm a civil rights trial lawyer. Ed started his career um, before he got into government as a civil rights uh, uh, lawyer. Um, And so Ed and I have been friends for many, many, many years. But I believe that these department heads knew Ed would not fire them. He knew, they knew it. So they have their own little fiefdoms and they're abusing the citizens of our city because their power is absolute because they know they're not going anywhere. That's why they're scared to death I'm going to be mayor because I have every intention of firing them. They're not doing their job and they're power hungry and that's not what their position is supposed to be doing. You know, people want to call me a moderate, a raving lib. People don't even know what to call me anymore. And I told them the other day, just call me a San Franciscan. I just want what's really good for the people of San Francisco. I want us to be able to live here. I want the streets to be to be clean. I don't want to see any poor people living on our streets in such a rich city. 
Um, and I want to see people in these departments doing their job because they love the city, not because they're making $300,000 a year and have a mayor that won't fire them. Nobody's, nobody's accountable to anybody but themselves. And that's going to change. Speaking of accountability, I want to move forward to another one of the priorities, your, one of your priorities. And if, if again, you're listening to Women's Magazine, uh, we're speaking with Angela Aliotto, who is running for mayor of San Francisco. Um, if you want more information about her campaign and her campaign priorities, aliottoformayor.com. Um, another big priority in this election season is public safety. Um, and I've, as I said, I've been to a lot of the mayor, mayoral forums, um, at the one of them that I was at at the Coret Auditorium, four out of the five candidates, including yourself and London Breed, Mark Leno, and Jane Kim, um, were advocating for a more police presence because we have this huge scourge of car break-ins, um, and of course we all want to feel safe and feel that the law enforcement is working for us as, you know, peace officers um, and contributing to the safety of our city. Um, I I do want to bring this into more of a national, broaden it a little bit. Uh, to this national conversation. There's been a growing uh, and existing mistrust or a lack of trust um, that's been growing about police uh, throughout the country. We see the Black Lives Matter movement. We see, you know, Colin Kaepernick taking a knee um, against police brutality. Um, we've witnessed that here both locally and nationally, uh, concerns about police militarization, violence that's met with impunity. Um, how, how, as mayor of San Francisco, how would you help to address that, that growing lack of public trust? And of course, it's not with everyone, but with, um, you know, definitely very, very vocal communities here. You know, I gave this speech last night, and it's funny, um, I've never talked about this. Uh, and it was because um, I would love to have the police officer's endorsement, um, first of all. The mayor of the city cannot work as the ch commander-in-chief. Uh, with a department they don't like. Uh, you just, you can't do that. Um, and we have some incredible police officers, wonderful police officers. And the few that are not good shouldn't be there. Um, and they're few. And that's what happens. Um, you know, we can't take on the responsibility of, of uh, what police officers do nationally because there are different states that are just so. Yeah. You know, as a civil rights attorney, I can tell you that there, there are some states I won't even go to trial in. Um, it's just just not happening. Um, uh, they wouldn't even let me in the courtroom. So it's it's, but our police department is one of the best. And last night I gave this speech, and it just kind of came out of nowhere. Mm. I grew up with my dad being mayor. Okay, so I grew up with the tax squad being in my living room, and when I left the house and was a young mother, the tax squad came with me, um, because we lived in a time of. Um, SYNQ, the SLA, zebra killings, the candy bombers, the San Quentin Seven, um, Zodiac, and a time of monthly terrorism. I came home from school one day, I took the 55 Sacramento, was walking home from school and saw all these sirens and everything, and the candy bombers had blown off the front of our house. So I'm a person who, um, who really needed the police officers and um, really respected them and I always have. When I was a supervisor, I was the supervisor for the police and the fire and the emergency services. We are in an earthquake city. If the mayor of this city can't get along with police, fire and emergency services, you're in trouble because nobody's gonna listen to anybody in the time of an emergency because there's no respect and there's no loyalty. So you can't make our San Francisco Police Department responsible for what's happening nationally. You have to focus on what we do really well, and what we don't do well, take care of it. You know, there are laws that take care of those things. Um, take care of it. But generally speaking, we need to have full staffing, if not more. We need more officers on bikes, and we may need more offices, uh, officers on horseback. When I was a kid and Dad was mayor, we had 50 mounted police officers. Um, then when I was president of the Board of Supervisors, it was in the 20s. I think we're down to like 11. Okay, now that sounds funny, but they're great when they're in, in North Beach. And that's a community just, you know, riding down the street. Of course, I'm a horse person, so I'm going to have horses all over. But having said that, um, uh, you know, the uh, uh, 
police officers on on horses in Golden Gate Park. Well, they were all over um, Ocean Beach when I was a kid. They were all over, and they were there to keep you safe and to protect you. I couldn't imagine looking at a police officer other than when I'm speeding and I see him in my rearview mirror. Other than that, I couldn't imagine being afraid of them. It's not in my realm of, possi- of, of beliefs because I was raised at a time where our homes were being blown up by crazy people. Um, the Iranian consulate, that home was blown up and it rocked our house off its base. I mean, you know, we've lived through, I have lived through true terrorism at my front door. And I don't think it's funny disrespecting our San Francisco police. Again, there are bad instances, but take care of that. There are laws to protect that. Do what the law says. Enforce the law. But generally speaking, um, it's terrible to live without respect for police officers. I want every community to get together with our community officers and more um, and, and know each other. You know, it's kind of like looking at you. I don't know why it reminded me of this, but because you have such a beautiful face. But looking at you thinking, you know, I used the word peace last night. And I stopped myself in the middle of the panel. Do you know how rarely we use that word anymore? Whoever says peace anymore? Since President Trump has been uh, president, nobody's talking about peace and getting along. Everybody's at each other. Okay? Our communities need to understand homeless people who seem crazy. They need to understand that. And we need to get them that specific help. Our communities need to understand the hard job of being a police officer. Quite frankly, you know, how would you feel stopping a car? You don't know if they're going to blow your head off or not, and you have three kids at home. Right. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a high, it's a stressful, yes, it's, it's a stressful, risk. yeah. So my point is, it would be just great if people could know each other. You know, it sounds stupid, but have a barbecue together and realize you're both human beings, um, and you need to get along for the safety of all of our city. We need our officers. Well, I think that that is something, uh, uh, you know, it's it's not as campy as it sounds. I think it's because this is because this is a I mean, this is a small city. And, um, you know, I I think the the police department is, you know, it's trying to go through a series of reforms right now to try to, you know, avoid um, some of its missteps. But um, we do have just a few more minutes here. I guess in a, in a different light of law enforcement, um, let's talk about Sanctuary City. Right. Uh, you wrote San- Sanctuary City Law. Um, now, I wrote the original. The original one. And I disagreed with the amendment. Okay. Well, uh, yeah. So could you give us the context of its inception and where it has gone from there? In 1989 and 90, I had just one office. Um, and uh, I was a supervisor and, and Harry Britt put me in charge of, of the health committee. And one night, um, uh, there was a dance party at the Club Elegante in um, South of Market in the Mission District. And there were about 400 couples there. Um, INS went in with the help of the SFPD and arrested everyone they thought was uh, um, illegal, took them out, and deported them. The call, the call I got the next morning was Supervisor Alioto come down and see all these children sitting on the front stairs of their home, and their parents were gone. I'm telling you, Val, it was a scene you would not have believed. It looked like something out of, a, of an orphanage where all the kids were let go and there were no adults anywhere. Oh, my gosh. And they were all sitting on the front step crying. So, you know, again, as a mother... I'm thinking, this is totally crazy that this would ever have been allowed. So I had Clue Bilagante hearings that resulted in the sanctuary law that says, if you come from a country where you're either, um, where there's a civil war um, or where there's a war on poverty and you can't feed your family, um, then you can come take sanctuary in the city and county of San Francisco, and the SFPD will not cooperate with the then INS, now ICE, um, in arresting you. So the police won't talk to the INS, and the INS won't talk to the police. That's what the original sanctuary law was. About six or seven years ago, David Campos came to me. I, I like David very much. Um, I think he's a really well-intended guy. Um, uh, he came to me and said, I want to add felons 
to the sanctuary law. Would you support that? And I told him, no, I don't support felons, you know, um, here illegally or not. In the sense that if you've done a violent crime, violent crime, to a citizen of the city of San Francisco, we're not going to support you. You do your time. And if you've done your time and then you're out, then you're no longer um, a felon. You're an ex-felon. Um, it's, it's, you know, uh, it's a matter of whether or not we're going to support people who basically keep the peace. So I did not think it was a good idea to be supporting um, illegal immigrants who are felons. And I'm highly criticized for that. I don't know why. I don't know why anyone um, thinks that's, you know, <laughs> not reasonable. But to me, it's extremely reasonable. And once again, it's because we need a safe city. Yes, and and here we 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 now kind of know Sanctuary City as you know as a safeguard uh, for for immigrants who are here, so that they can access public safety services like the fire and the police without the risk of you know having their immigration being a being a, a an issue. And that's yeah. fine, but not if you're in the, involved in a violent crime again and you're already a felon. That's not fine. Yeah, and this week we had the. Attorney General of the United States come into California to sue it over three pieces of sanctuary city legislation. Um, you know, if if you become mayor of San Francisco, I I hope you get a chance to sit down and talk to uh, some of the folks in Washington D.C. Perhaps yeah. about about this law because there are I think a lot of um, you know people misconstrue it in many different ways. Absolutely. However, our sanctuary law is is hard to de- it's very hard to f- defend in court. Um, because of the felon amendment to it. Um, you know, Sessions coming to the state, the top law enforcement guy coming to the state, I mean, how embarrassing for the administration. What's wrong with those people? It's just well, to come here against immigrants who are working hard and, and making a living and making our state great. How dare they come in and um, uh, sue us and act like they're going? I thought they were going to arrest Libby, <laughs> the mayor of Oakland. I thought they were going to really arrest her. Um, I'm glad to see that they didn't, because what 